Hello there, and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, episode 149, Restoration. Thanks to the Kwangtung Army's occupation of Manchuria and the resulting outcry abroad and the explosion of support at home, Japan rapidly locked itself into a new course of unilateralism. The 20s had been spent carefully creating an international consensus of security designed to stave off a costly arms race that Japan was unlikely to win. But within just a couple of years, that consensus was in tatters. The masses had grown mistrustful of foreigners that showed their nation little respect. The political underpinnings of internationalism had been dismantled by the double trends of disenchantment with party politics and the triumph of the militarists. And the acquisition of Northeast China up to the Great Wall was a guarantee that detente in China was, for all practical purposes, over in the long run. Japan had put itself out in the cold, and in the years leading up to the final breakdown in relations with China in 1937, there would be internal soul-searching about how to move forward. The people were behind unilateralism in ways they simply hadn't been in the early 1920s, again as a result of distrust of foreign powers, but also because of the fear instilled by the Great Depression and the changes in the balance of power on the Asian mainland. The question would increasingly become how far the empire of Japan would go in order to satisfy its own pathological drive to neutralize its perceived enemies. Japan's commitment to unilateralism was demonstrated in its response to the Leighton Commission. Back at the outset of the Manchurian occupation, Chiang Kai-shek had ordered a policy of non-resistance to the Japanese invasion and pinned his hopes of redressing the situation on an appeal to the League of Nations. The situation in Manchuria was far and away the gravest challenge yet posed to the League. It had managed to negotiate the end of small border conflicts in the Balkans, but in situations where major powers were in play, such as the Corfu crisis in 1923, the great powers typically resolved it amongst themselves. Now, though, China, not recognized as a great power, but also a nation way too big to ignore, was making a direct appeal to the League. The challenge had to be accepted, and the Leighton Commission was set up, headed by Lord Leighton from the UK, but also including a representative from the US, Germany, Italy, and France. Its goal was to act as a fact-finding group that would go to Japan and China and determine the situation on the ground and report back to the League. Keep in mind, Japan was making every possible excuse to justify their presence in Manchuria, and so there at least had to be an attempt at an impartial investigation, even though everybody knew Japan was guilty as hell. The overall objective was to find some means to nudge the Japanese to back off without dragging them in front of the entire world. What the members of the commission failed to realize, though, was that the Japanese leadership weren't having it anymore. There might have been resistance going into Manchuria, but once the reality of their commitment had sunk in, Tokyo was resolved to retain the conquest. The commission took its time, but the final report delivered on October 2, 1932, was damning. The only voice defending Japan was the French representative, uh, but that was only because that country favored placating the Japanese in order to keep the peace in East Asia while the chaos caused by the Depression in Europe played out. The best that the French were able to do was not have Japan called out as the specific bad guy. The report concluded that Japan had undisputedly invaded China without a proper declaration of war and seized Chinese territory. The Japanese argument of acting in self-defense was dismissed as wrong, and Manchukuo could not be considered an independent state. 
The report recommended that the Japanese withdraw back to its original positions in the Liaodong Peninsula and allow China to set up a special authority to guarantee its economic interests in Manchuria. The report was scheduled to be considered by the League Assembly in February 1933 in order to give the Japanese time to sort out its response. This was, as you might imagine, unacceptable to the Japanese, and they made no move to reverse their course. In fact, they prepared for the negative response by expanding their formal ties to Manchukuo before the report was even made public, and the invasion of Rihi province was launched right around when the report was due to be acted upon by the League. On February 20th, 1933, Prime Minister Saito and his cabinet secretly agreed that if the likely outcome of Japan's denunciation went through, that they would take the step of withdrawing from the League. Such a step was not exactly without precedent. A number of nations in Latin America had joined and then withdrawn from the League during the 20s, so it was a thing that did happen. But this had never been done by one of the four permanent members of the League Council, nor had any of the exits been under circumstances as extreme as these. The Japanese delegate in Geneva was one Matsuoka Yosoki. He had immigrated to Portland, Oregon in the U.S. as a young teen and had earned a law degree there before returning to Japan. He had served in postings in most of the major powers Japan had butted heads with over the years and had negotiated an end to the Shanghai incident after the battle there had wound down in the spring of 1932. On February 24, 1933, he appeared before the League Assembly and delivered a passionate defense of his empire and its claims, condemning China as a nation too weak to maintain law and order within its borders. What Japan had done in Manchukuo, according to him, could only be described as a blessing, one that Japan would be gracious enough to extend to China proper in order to properly bring that nation into the community of nations. The Assembly didn't go for it, and voted against Japan 42-1, to 1, with Siam abstaining for the sake of good relations, and Matsuoka himself casting the only vote against on behalf of his nation. The Assembly was deadly silent after the result, the only sound in the hall coming from the sound of the shoes of the Japanese delegation storming out of the chamber. A month later, on March 27th, after, quote-unquote, many sleepless nights, Hirohito gave his approval and the Japanese government formally told the League that their nation was no longer part of that body. Japan was officially going out on its own. Except instead of a runaway train, the Saito government took the opportunity to hit the brakes. From May 1933 to July 1937, there would be no major campaigns by the Japanese or Chinese, and the Tengu Truce held for a time. Uh, party politics did not make a comeback, much to the chagrin of the Sayukai leadership. When Prime Minister Saito resigned in July 1934 over a fairly humdrum bribery scandal, he was replaced by Okada Keisuke, another admiral who had served as Saito's navy minister. This annoyed the Sayukai to no end, as their leadership had assumed that their full-throated support for Saito would mean that when he stepped down and the Manchurian crisis had passed, which it appeared to have done after the Japanese walkout, you know, nothing bad had happened, uh, they would be welcomed back into power. That didn't happen, and moreover, they couldn't do a damn thing about it either. Yeah, party politics were kind of donezo as far as forming governments went. Japan's democracy also wasn't helped by the fact that the economic recovery under Saito had been driven by government spending and special programs, including large infrastructure projects out in the countryside, projects directly managed by the bureaucracy. Since this largesse was being doled out through the government and not by any special representatives, 
then the political parties were effectively cut out of getting credit. The Sayukai's voting base became increasingly content with working through the ministries rather than their representatives in the Diet. Additional reforms were passed that made it difficult for the parties to get their allies into the bureaucracies, and the ministries started becoming institutional fortresses, each siloed off from each other and defensive about what aspect of running the country they oversaw, tolerating no interference. The military was supportive of this approach in government as it centralized decision-making away from elected officials and solidified control by the new bureaucrats that I had described in previous episodes. The increasing ability of the ministries to enact policy with immediate effect and with decreased oversight was something the military was very interested in. And it effectively defanged the parties as the diet's leverage boiled down to approving the budget, and even that could be held hostage lest they be branded as unpatriotic. The Sayukai attempted to show some resistance by refusing to serve in Okada's unity government, but that just resulted in numerous members ditching out on the party in order to, to secure government appointments. Or they were just representatives who supported what the government was doing. These defectors would, in December 1935, form their own party, the Showakai, forming another alternative to what had previously been the center of Japanese party politics. Both the Sayukai and Menseito gradually withered as the nation's elites, whether they were urban businessmen or local bigwigs out in the countryside, opted to work with ministry officials rather than through the parties. And that's also where the talent and money started flowing too, so the diet failed to attract the most gifted up-and-comers into its ranks. There would be some negotiations for the major parties to merge and jointly try and demand their former prominence back, but those talks went nowhere as there was no natural leader of such a movement and everyone had a different idea how such a coalition should have been organized. Even Prince Sayonji, the last Genro and champion of party politics in an earlier era, conceded that the conditions for party governments no longer existed among the elites and it was better to keep up with the appointed cabinets. It didn't help that the military became bold in attacking the parties either, as you well know by now, most members of the officer corps held the parties in disdain, even as some of their own left the military to pursue political careers. To them, the parties were a corrupt lot who loved selling out, whether it was to exploitive business interests or foreign powers. Those officers might have been militarists who demanded a blood sacrifice from their own people, but they also disdained the economic inequalities of the modern era and sought to rebalance the scales through a meritocratic approach an authoritarian meritocratic approach. To that end, they exploited the weakness of party politics after the Depression and went on the public attack, encouraging media attacks on politicians, and as we'll discuss in a moment, encouraging actual attacks as well. The days when the military would hold its collective tongue and keep its distance were well and truly over, and their influence over government would only increase as their partnership with the bureaucracy went on. But Prime Minister Okada wasn't exactly a crazy out-there appointment. He was actually a moderate, if not a Democrat, and had supported the Naval Arms Limitations Treaties and the international consensus approach to security. Not that he pushed to go back to those days. He was also a realist who knew which way the winds were blowing. He simply wasn't a rabid expansionist either. That did present a problem for some, though, as the expansionist Imperial Way faction of the army was very much so in the ascendancy on account of their successes in China. In fact, the interventionist approach had been totally vindicated in the eyes of the people. 
Japan had conquered a huge new area, was developing the hell out of it, and had defied the League of Nations, all without nothing really bad happening. Oh, they had taken casualties in the campaigns, but it was enough to stir the passions of patriotism without horrifying the public with a gigantic bloodletting. And while the initial war fever had dulled somewhat since the fall of 1931, the army committed itself to producing documentaries, newsreels, and even movies espousing the new Bushido school of thought. People were expected to be ever ready to fight, sacrifice their comforts, and if need be, to die gloriously for the empire. In propaganda, the old Emperor Meiji would appear as a spirit and solemnly intone that nothing great was ever accomplished without massive effort and sacrifice. The people could never be allowed to forget that war might just be around the corner, and that they would be expected to contribute to the battles that would be certain to follow. And while Saito and Okada both favored cooling it on the adventurism, Hirohito's own position evolved. Before the Tengu Truce and the League walkout, he had been apprehensive about his own army's aggression. As late as the Rihi operation, he was warning his commanders to have a care about how far they should take the battle to the Chinese. But after Japan exited the League, Hirohito perceived that his empire had acted boldly and not suffered any ill effects. They had defied the world and gotten away with it. Where once he feared a coalition of great powers aligning against him, he thereafter came to believe future expansion would not be opposed by outsiders. That the emperor was now in favor of military solutions would prove to be a boon to the militarists going forward. Indeed, the main thing slowing down the military from totally dominating the direction of the country was the fact that it was itself hopelessly factionalized. I have already spoken about the Imperial Way faction, which favored bold expansion and a war with the Soviet Union sooner rather than later, and its opposite group, the Control Faction, which preferred to pause and develop Japan's war-making capability through its new acquisition in Manchukuo. Then there was the added complexity of inter-service rivalry, which, if you are even vaguely familiar with the Pacific War, you are probably already familiar with. When it became clear that Japan was going to pursue a lone wolf approach, the army and navy very quickly got into competition with each other. The army wanted armaments enough to have a showdown with the Soviets and to dominate China, while the navy needed a much larger force if it was to engage the US and UK both, who were suddenly on the board as potential threats. The fears of the internationalists over Japan lacking the resources to enforce its own security against all comers very quickly were realized, and that started to create pressures that could only barely be controlled. Among the Imperial Way faction of the military, there grew a desire for what was termed a Showa Restoration, which you'll remember that Hirohito's imperial name was the Showa Emperor. The gist of it was that the emperor was the natural center of all power in Japan, what with him being a living god descended from an unbroken chain of living gods. While the Meiji constitution readily acknowledged the emperor as the font from which all authority in the nation flowed, the Restorationists made the argument that it obscured the emperor's power through the multi-branch system of government. The emperor should rule directly, bypassing deliberation among the elites. This reflected a growing distrust among many in Japan, and in the military in particular, for those elites. And while this wasn't advertised, while the emperor would rule directly, the Restorationists assumed he would rule through them, meaning that they would control the emperor and his unlimited authority. Yes, even though democracy had already been basically neutralized, in the increasingly frenzied atmosphere of Japanese life, where every foreign power was considered an enemy and a 
war somewhere, maybe even everywhere, was considered eminent, this wasn't enough. There had to be a kind of rule where debate of any kind was bypassed and decisions made by aggressive leaders made immediately. The dominant school of thought regarding the interpretation of the emperor's power since the 1910s had been formulated by Minobe Tatsukichi. Minobe, who by the first half of the 30s was still active in government, espoused a view that the emperor had to work within the parameters of the constitution, being a document that the emperor Meiji had agreed two years ago. This had been conventional wisdom back then, but now came under relentless assault as it was just that, conventional wisdom and subject to change. The Constitution was open to interpretation when it came to the place of a living God. Political groups in both the civilian and military sphere formed to demand that the government take a stand on the debate, with senior generals implying they might move against the government, and Okada in 1935 had to, multiple times, concede that Minobe's stance was incorrect. And indeed, the emperor had unlimited power, being the living personification of the Japanese state, and not just a part of it. This public assertion opened the door for the Ministry of Education to go full-on Neo-Bushido mode in its curriculum, changing lesson plans to emphasize the divine nature of their emperor, as well as, you know, giving, them, giving students chauvinistic interpretations of the nation's Shinto beliefs. Hirohito himself was quiet on the renewed debate over his own powers, stating that in his eyes, both stances left him in the same position, which wasn't true and may have indicated he didn't quite grasp the stakes of the conflict swirling around him, but also very well could have been a deliberately ambiguous approach to avoid being tied down to either faction. All this being said, he did enjoy the perks of the new approach, as he became even more assertive on policy matters than he had before, and appeared to enjoy the worshipping nature of fanatical army officers. His main conflict with the Restorationists was that he wanted to maintain the elites in their privileged positions, and also that many in his personal court came under attack. Okada's concessions on the Emperor's position did little to stem tensions, and in 1935, elements of the Imperial Way faction started resorting to violence against the backdrop of the debates over the Emperor's position. The leader of the control faction in the army was one General Nagata Tetsuin, who was in charge of expanding and modernizing the army. His work necessitated a close working relationship with the arms industry and ergo the Zaibatsu, which did not endear him to the anti-business class Imperial Way faction, who saw him as compromised and beholden to financial interests. In mid-1935, a pair of Imperial Way officers were arrested for the second time in a year for plotting a coup against the government, and their defense was a counter-accusation that Nagata was planning the same thing. Both officers were kicked out of the army, and the Imperial Way became alarmed that as part of his reorganization efforts, Nagata would purge as many of them as he could from the army as well. On August 12, 1935, Azawa Saburo, a colonel and member of the Imperial Way, walked into Nagata's office and ran him through with his katana. This became known as the Aizawa Incident, and the colonel calmly surrendered himself to police custody. The Imperial Way clique secured for him a public trial, which would be good for them because, while the outcome wasn't in any doubt, they wanted a public spectacle. And they delivered, and then some. The trial, which got underway on January 28, 1936, was hardly about the guilt of Aizawa, and instead became a platform for the Imperial Way to denounce the Okada government, Minobe's constitutionalist approach, and the elites surrounding the emperor they regarded as corrupt. Azawa presented himself as a simple soldier, taking matters into his own hands, 
to resist an establishment beholden to financial interests and not to national security. Turned out he was an exceptional orator, and his words touched millions in the country. Letters poured in to show their support of him, and there were even instances where an old practice of cutting off the tip of a finger to show solidarity was done. The trial heightened feelings against the sitting government, and also convinced members of the Imperial Way that there might be an opening for even bolder action. The timing was potentially fortuitous, as the 1st Division of the Army was still stationed in Tokyo. That unit was dominated by the Imperial Way, but it was also scheduled to be transferred to the Kwantung Army in the spring, far away from the capital. If they were to make a move, they had to do it quick. It took time to get the leading officers of the 1st Division on the same page, but by February 26th, they were ready to launch the biggest coup attempt to date. At 5 a.m., 1,400 men from the 1st Division and a contingent of the Imperial Guards marched into the heart of Tokyo. They seized the Army Ministry and the police headquarters, and from there went on a hunt for senior officials. Ex-Prime Minister and current Lord Keeper of the Privy Seal, Saito, Finance Minister Takahashi, and Inspector General of Military Education, General Watanabe, who was doubly hated for being a supporter of Minobe, were all murdered. In addition, the Emperor's Grand Chamberlain, Suzuki Kentaro, was badly wounded, though he survived. About a half-dozen police officers were killed, and Prime Minister Okada only escaped when his assailants went to his home and mistook his brother-in-law for him. Something the soldiers obviously hadn't counted on, though, was quick action by the Navy. A unit of Marines were deployed to protect the Navy Ministry building from the insurrectionists, and orders were sent to the First Fleet, then deployed close by on maneuvers, to enter Tokyo Bay. Forty warships appeared by the 27th, their guns trained on the city and ready to fire. It turned out not to be necessary, as the Imperial Palace remained unoccupied and communications were still open. Hirohito was aghast at the violence against his ministers. Plus, he feared that the rebels might force him to abdicate in favor of his brother. He accused the insurrectionists of tying a silk rope around his neck. Loyal army units moved into the capital, and by the 29th, the uprising had melted away, most of the 1st Division troops having returned to their barracks before relief even arrived. The rank and file were largely pardoned with no punishment, but the 17 primary officers leading the insurrection were swiftly tried and executed. Aizawa, the man who had partially incited what became known as the February 26th incident, was himself executed in July. Understandably, the coup prompted some soul-searching within the Japanese leadership. The Imperial Wave faction was deeply marginalized, and the Control faction won the battle for influence in the army. Numerous generals were purged, and junior officers were shuffled out of their positions of influence. Hirohito himself had showed previously uncharacteristic resolve during the crisis and had even threatened to lead his Imperial Guard troops out into the city personally if the army hadn't been willing to put down the coup. Hirohito afterwards showed a good deal more decisiveness, which translated to a greater willingness to go along with military solutions to problems, which, uh, well, it led to some stuff, let me tell you, and one day I will. Prime Minister Okada, shaken at his close brush with death, resigned on March 9th. He was replaced by Hirota Koki, who actually came from a diplomatic background, so hey, not a military man for a change. His appointment was well-timed, as for a brief moment there was some calm domestically, so Hirota could focus on his own speciality in foreign relations. 
He had served first as the chief diplomat to the Soviet Union before becoming foreign minister, and had engineered in March 1935 an agreement with the USSR, where the Manchukuan government bought the rights to the railways in northern Manchuria that the Soviets still owned, removing that uncomfortable complication in the region. His agenda for the empire that was circulated among the elites was grandiose, and on the surface, a platform of complete madness. The usual objectives of turning Manchukuo into a giant factory and detaching more of North China from the KMT government were givens. That was all normal. But then he also called for an army buildup to fight the Soviets and a naval buildup to dominate Southeast Asia, a clear move against the West. This was impossible, but there was some method to the madness. The army and navy were diverging rapidly in their ambitions, uh, the army looking north to Siberia and the navy south to the western colonial empires. If Hirota deemed them both a priority, then he didn't have to actually commit to either. Moreover, while the objectives were certainly presented to the leadership of the ministries and the military, there weren't any actual tangible plans on how to, you know, achieve them. How all this was supposed to come about was never elaborated upon, and the ambiguity was used to delay action. The objectives themselves were vague. It was never definitively said how much of Siberia was supposed to be occupied, nor how much the Western Pacific area. What was tangible about these plans was a shift in Japan's diplomacy to break its isolation and find supportive friends. With these new goals in mind, he secured an agreement with Nazi Germany and fascist Italy called the Anti-Comintern Pact in late 1936. It was a treaty of mutual cooperation against the Soviet Union, and was one of the first moves towards expanding the Rome-Berlin axis to Tokyo. It's a really important piece of diplomacy, and its story and more will be recounted when I do a special episode dedicated to how the axis came together later this season. For now, just beware that this was the direction Japan was heading in. Increasingly isolated from the West, belligerent to China and the Soviet Union, and looking for new friends that also liked breaking the rules. The new approach also meant the gradual abandonment of the naval treaties that had formed the bedrock of peace in the Pacific. Concurrently with its exit from the League, Japan started to cut corners and generally misrepresent what it was constructing to get around its treaty obligations and expand the fleet. Once it came time to negotiate a new round of naval treaties in late 1935, Japan expressed disinterest to continue participating in such schemes. The great powers again assembled in London, and after only a month, Japan exited the negotiations in January 1936. The only major powers who signed on to the new agreement were the UK, US, and France. And they were under no illusion as to what the Japanese exit meant. Overall, tonnage limits were scrapped in favor of just limiting how big a ship of each type could be and how big their guns could be. On top of that loosening of the rules, clauses were made allowing for those restrictions to be further reduced incrementally the longer that former Washington Naval Treaty participants, looking at you, Japan and Italy, refused to sign on to the new London Treaty. This effectively meant the naval arms race was back on, just as Japan was flooding mainland Asia with ground troops. Japanese admirals went into overdrive demanding an expansion of the navy so that they could take on both the U.S. and U.K., all the while, the Kwantung army expanded from 65,000 men in 1931 to 195,000 in 1936, with still more being sent over. Finance Minister Takahashi, who had shepherded the country off the gold standard and engineered the recovery from the Depression, had been stern in blocking an expansion in military spending, 
correctly perceiving that the inevitable bottlenecks and resources available to actually build the weapons the military was demanding would cause more chaos in the nation's political system. Unfortunately, he was among those murdered in the February 26th incident, and his successors were not chosen for their forcefulness. The military budget increased from being a quarter of the yearly budget to half of it in 1936, and then on account of a vast increase in the government budget, military spending tripled in 1937 while maintaining the overall share of, you know, half that budget. The government at this point was just straight-up printing money. If you live in the West and ever wondered why the yen comes in such large denominations, well, the history of the crazy inflation of the currency really got going here. The inflationary policies certainly stimulated the economy, and Japan's industries saw a rapid expansion, right alongside the expanding industries I've already covered in my Manchukuo coverage. But it was never enough. Only so many guns and tanks and cannons could be produced, while the shipyards were also demanding material to expand the fleet, and both services were greedy for additional aircraft. Meanwhile, on the home front, the mood of the nation fell into a frenzy. Everywhere in the news, events were happening at a dizzying rate. Foreign relations were changing, old friends were increasingly seen as enemies, the rapid expansion of the armaments industry gave everybody the impression that war was imminent. And given the size of Japan's enemies, the people understood the gravity of their, of their situation. When the country's leaders demanded mobilization, both physical and spiritual, the people were receptive. They went to the factories, ready to do what they needed to in order to support their empire. These sentiments created a feedback loop where militarists exhorted the populace to prepare for war, which they did, and ergo increasingly accepted the possibility of war as a natural outcome. This incredible drive towards war created a split in Japan's government between conservatives who wished to dial back the militarism and return to a semblance of the pre-1931 status quo, and reformists who wished to hyper-centralize power in the government to allow society to be mobilized for total war. Terminology is odd in this case. A reformist usually has positive connotations, but technically, well, I mean, it does all check out. They are, you know, overhauling the system here. Prime Minister Hirota, ever the diplomat, tried to keep the peace in his 11 months in office. But both military ministries pushed forward a plan that would put the budget directly under the control of the prime minister and away from the diet, completely reorganize the ministries to make them more responsive under wartime conditions, bind local governments and the prefectures more tightly to the government in Tokyo, and expand regulatory agencies to bring critical industries under closer government control. This time, the business community, the ministries, and the Diet were fully outraged and actually stood up to the military. Hirota tried to dial back the reform package, but the Diet simply wasn't having it. During the debates in the Diet, the Minister of the Army accused a prominent representative with the Sayukai of being treasonous, and the representative offered to commit ritual suicide if actual evidence could be brought against him. The representative then went on the attack and demanded the army minister do the same thing if he failed to present evidence. The legislation was dropped, and the offending minister resigned, creating a crisis of confidence that brought down the, the Hirota government. Hirohito tried to appoint General Hayashi Sinjuru as the new prime minister, believing he could keep the army on board with the government. The problem, though, was that Hayashi brought in Ishiwara and his supporters to begin setting up a new political party in the Diet to neutralize that body and advocate for a dictatorship. The establishment conservatives again rallied and boycotted the government, 
which forced Hayashi to break with Ishiwara and backtrack, retreating to a conciliatory position between the conservatives and the reformists. Hayashi himself was only in power for four months between February and June 1937, but there was one occurrence that bears mentioning. Hayashi brought into the government a small clique of technocrats that, while not military men themselves, were fully on board with the objectives of the militarists. The primary gulf between the military and the business class, especially the Zaibatsu, had been the military's distrust at the priorities of the business elites. They weren't patriotic enough and focused on profit over advancing the national interest. Hayashi's technocrats bridged this divide by assuring Japan's businessmen that the military was the best business opportunity that they had. In May 1937, a five-year plan was sketched out by the government that was supported by both the military and the business class. There would be no need for divisive legislation any longer. The five-year plan would assign the ministry's clear objectives, the businessmen would get guaranteed contracts, and the military would be assured that they would be the national priority. This split the business class and much of the bureaucracy from the parties in the Diet, as they no longer needed to band together for protection. They had made their accommodations. This emboldened Hayashi to ban members of political parties from his government, and in May 1937 called for new elections as a demonstration of public support. The error there was that while the parties were looked at as unpatriotic and problematic by many of the nation's elites, the people hadn't quite internalized those ideas themselves, regardless of their periodic displeasure over corruption. The Sayukai and Menseito had far stronger showings than any of the pro-government groups Hayashi supported. Stinging from the rejection, Hayashi resigned. This brought to the forefront a prime minister who's going to be important as all hell, a member of the nobility named Prince Konoe. He's going to be a mover and shaker all the way to 1941, and was even a player afterwards. I feel kind of bad about introducing him only at the end of this miniseries, but the invasion of China proper is almost upon us, right as Kanoe entered office. He was already well-known by the nation's elites, and had been acting as a diplomat between the factions already. He brought in leaders of all types to his cabinet, conservatives, reformists, party politicians, he even extended a hand to Ishiwara. When Kanoe became prime minister on June 4, 1937, his primary focus was getting the five-year plan through the Diet. Little did he know that just a month later, on July 7th, a small skirmish between Japanese and Chinese soldiers would escalate into a general war that would last over eight years and end with the Empire's destruction. This was the Marco Polo Bridge Incident, and don't worry, I'm going to go into way, way more detail on it when I pick up with my miniseries covering both Japan and China from July 1937 to the end of the decade. For right now, just know that the incident initially ended in a truce, but then on July 9th, the Japanese commander on the scene decided to go back on the attack. From there, things just snowballed. And before anyone could defuse the situation, the Japanese high command was sending the Kwantung army towards Beijing and prepping a new landing on Shanghai. But that is a tale for when I begin my miniseries covering the first years of the Second Sino-Japanese War. So, uh, yeah, things really escalated during this miniseries, didn't it? At the start, Japan was still signing on to naval treaties. Internationalism ruled the day, and their moves in China were more bumbling than anything else. What a difference a depression made. People losing faith in democracy is a common theme of this podcast, but an entire army going rogue and conquering a gigantic chunk of real estate is decidedly not and probably goes down in history as the greatest command and control breakdown of all time. 
I feel like most things on this show I can put in perspective for a modern audience, even detached from events by almost a century. I can't really do that with the Manchurian occupation. Just the damnedest thing. And it dominated everything after there, too. There was no attempt to double back or extricate the empire of the whole unauthorized affair. Tokyo retconned the whole thing as all part of the plan and made the conquest an integral part of the empire. And once the elites accepted that war was inevitable, disagreeing only on the timing, everything went to chaos as leaders and officials trampled over each other, trying to get themselves set for what was to come. And when what was to come finally arrived, it was almost by accident and nobody was properly ready. Kanoe wanted to run through the five-year plan first, which would establish the basis for Japan to actually pursue its lofty ambitions. The war with China broke out only a month after he took office, though, before an organized approach to gearing the nation up for such a conflict could even be initiated. And that would be the downfall of Japan. Boldness counted for a lot. Boldness had worked so far. But if all that backed it up were ad hoc arrangements, then trouble was sure to follow. And Japan would find it in the destination of our next miniseries, China. I actually left them last season in late 1928 with Chiang Kai-shek and the KMT Triumphant, ready to inaugurate what would become known as the Nanjing Decade. It wasn't a peaceful time by any means, but it was one where Chiang aggressively pursued a policy of development and centralization that would make China at least partially capable of standing up to the Japanese. We'll begin to see how that worked out for him starting next week, so join me then, and as always, thank you very much for listening.